But a, a, a very apt song to sing before we get into our study this morning as the, the chorus there sings the body-raising, powerful name of Jesus. If you would turn to John chapter 11, many of you, I'm sure, familiar with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. That will be our text this morning. And I'm sure, again, many of us probably familiar with this, with this story. Always difficult to to teach a, a familiar story because people are like, oh, I've heard this before. You know, like, oh, what's, what's new? Hopefully there's something the Lord wants to say to us here this morning. I'm trusting he wants to speak because I know his word does not return void. So as we get to John chapter 11, this powerful story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is only recorded in the Gospel of John, which I find really interesting for something as big as it is as far as miracles go. The fact that only John covers it is very interesting to me. And this is Kind of the grand finale of up to this point in John's gospel, the seven miracles that Jesus has performed. He has changed water into wine. He's healed the nobleman's son. He's healed the paralytic by the pool. He's fed the 5,000. He's done his walking on water thing that he likes to do. He's healed the man born blind. And so now we get to he is raising Lazarus from the dead. And John includes each of these signs, each of these miracles up to this point, and including this one, he includes these things and the the things that Jesus did for a specific reason to teach a specific lesson to us about Christ's divine authority. There's a reason that he includes them in here. And and he does it and with a hope that all those things, as we read those things, as we study what's going on and, and the lesson we're supposed to learn from them, that they will have a certain result in our lives as we read him. At the end of John's gospel, John 20, verse 30 and 31, he writes, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that I've included, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is why he included these things. They're there for a purpose. And they all kind of have this crescendo here now in John chapter 11, proving Christ's power over the most feared enemy of humanity, death. That we serve a God who has power over death. And as we study this this morning, and as we look at the different interactions that Jesus has with people, it was interesting. What stuck out to me the most as I was studying was every single decision, statement, action, or command that Jesus makes in this text is misunderstood, misinterpreted, or questioned. Every single one, save one, the dead guy. The Lazarus is the only one who immediately obeys when he hears the voice of the Son of God. Everyone else completely is trying to figure out what Jesus is saying. And so as we look at these seven interactions that Jesus has, again, seven, you see that number as a pattern for those who study the Bible, seven, the number of completion, we're seeing it right here. We look at these seven interactions that Jesus has, and I pray that when we are tempted to question or misunderstand the way that the Lord does things, or how we perceive and think the the way the Lord is doing something, my prayer is that we will die to ourselves And we'll see that God's divine delays have a sanctifying purpose in our lives and that we can completely trust him when our human and very finite understanding of things won't satisfy. So that's the goal. Lord willing, we'll get through it. Kind of a daunting task. We're going to get through hopefully 45 verses. Pastor Justin did like eight chapters in Romans quite a long time ago. So I think we're going to be okay. All right. Chapter 11, verse 1. 
the first interaction here that Jesus has with the messenger. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So we find out this first time we meet Lazarus in Scripture here, Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, and they live in the village, the city of Bethany. This would not be the same village of Bethany in the area where John the Baptist was baptizing people. This was a Bethany, a town about one and a half, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Today it's actually an Arab village called Al-Azariah, which actually means the place of Lazarus, which is kind of interesting. And then so we get introduced to kind of the main three characters in our story here. And then in verse 2 it says, It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. If you've read this and you've read through the Gospel of John before, as far as the timeline of events go, verse 2 hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Okay? Um, John is just making the connection for the reader of who it is. To us, we're like, what are you talking about? We're like flipping through the last 10 chapters. Like, what is he? he She never did that. You got to get to chapter 12, verse 3 to figure out, oh, a kind of light bulb. It kind of all makes sense. This is what Lazarus is talking about. And there's quite a few Marys in the Bible. And so uh, Jesus was talking about, and then this is the Mary that John was talking about. And so there's quite a few Marys in the Bible. So this is just to signify it's this Mary that did that. That was the one who wiped the Lord's hair uh, with her, or the Lord's feet with her hair. That would be weird. Wiped his hair with her feet. That'd be a little awkward. <laughs> the Lord moves in mysterious ways, but that's, I don't even think that, that's a little bit too far for me, Lord. <laughs> But it is also very possible, again, trying to think in context of when this was uh, written and being read, it's possible that the actions that Mary had done of anointing Jesus, you know, had been spoken of in the church. It had gotten around prior to John writing this. And so the reader would make the connection right away. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's that Mary. Um, because it definitely seems like there's an assumption on John's part that we're going to, we, we will know who he's talking about right away without even having to read further in his, in his gospel. And we also get to understand here, this, just in these first two verses, the, the close personal relationship that Jesus had with his family, and is evidenced by other verses as well. But in verse 3, it says, Therefore their sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So they send a messenger. They don't go themselves. Naturally, I'm putting myself in their place. I can understand that. They'd want to stay back with their brother. They wouldn't want to leave his side, especially not really knowing from us exactly. We don't really know what kind of sickness this is or how long he's been sick. But they send a messenger to him, which means obviously he's not in this town of Bethany. If we look back up into chapter 10, verse 39, It says, therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped, speaking of Jesus, but he escaped out of their hand and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first and there he stayed. So that's where Jesus is at the time that he's receiving this message from Mary and Martha. And the messenger comes and he delivers the message being, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And that first observation, I think it's very interesting for a messenger to come on behalf of those who have a sick relative, that in this message, there is no request for Jesus to come heal him. 
There's no request for Jesus to actually come back and heal their brother. There's no appeal to his supernatural power. They simply bring their need before him. That's all they do. They simply bring their need before him. In Matthew 6, verse 8, it says, Therefore, do, and this is talking about the heathens and how they pray in their vain repetitions. It says, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. You simply just need to bring your need before him. He knows what you need. He knows before you even ask him. And it's still, it's a pleasure and a joy to bring those things before him. So they just bring their need. They, they're just really trusting in their relationship and the knowledge of Jesus' love for Lazarus that he's going to come to the conclusion that they want him to heal Lazarus on their own. Like, they're not asking him. They're just saying, he's sick. And I hope you know what to do with that. <laughs> like, I hope you realize what we're really asking here. And that word love there, behold, though he whom you love is sick, is the, the Greek word phileo, that brotherly friendship love. Your friend, Lazarus is sick. It is interesting to me that in all of scripture, we really don't hear two peeps out of Lazarus. <laughs> we don't know what he said. He never says a word. But apparently he and Jesus were very close friends. And in chapter 12, we see they're chatting it up at the dinner table. We don't really know what they're saying. But they send this messenger. They say, hey, just, just tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick. He's, he's his friend. He'll know, he'll know what to do. Before we go on, please understand that Jesus' love for you is always the basis for why he does or doesn't do something. It's always the basis for why he acts or he doesn't act. His love is always the basis. That is why he directly intervenes in our situation sometimes and other times he doesn't. It's why he gives us answer and clarity sometimes when we ask and at other times he doesn't. If we are as confident of his love for us as Mary and Martha were of his love for Lazarus, then while it's difficult, we don't have to question why he's doing what he's doing. We can simply trust that he's doing what's best for us because the basis of his decision is his love for us. He is our friend. Psalms 84, 11 says, No good thing will he, will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. He knows what we need before we ask of him. He's our friend. He's not withholding these things from us because he's just spiteful or vengeful or he's angry at us. His motivation is always because he loves us. And so the Lord's no to our requests, he means that with just as much love as when he says yes. With just as much love as when he says yes. And if we, if we miss this, this, this message is really the foundation for every choice that Jesus makes in this story. It's because he loved them. That's why he does what he does. Because if this was any one of us, I'm sure our immediate reaction would be to just get up and, and, hightail, and hightail it out of there, head back to where our sick relative was, was. We want to be there with them before they go, or we want them to see them heal, but we want to be with them. We don't want to be separated from them. And so even though the sisters are confident of Jesus' love for Lazarus, his response is quite unexpected and quite different than what they would might think. In verse 4, Jesus' response to that message is, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Notice he doesn't say that Lazarus wouldn't die. He just says it's not unto death. Death's not going to be the ultimate end game. And he's not going, maybe he will die. Maybe, I don't know. But he didn't say he's not going to die. But death's not the ultimate game. There's a whole other purpose for why this sickness is happening, and it's for the glory of God. 
And he goes on by saying that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And I think this statement has a twofold fulfillment. Once very clearly by Jesus being glorified in the action of raising Lazarus from the dead. He receives the glory from that. Absolutely. But even beyond that, he will be glorified in his crucifixion. The ultimate sacrifice and purpose of his life and ministry here on the earth. His glorification to please the Father. And that is because this miracle is what starts the clock for the cross. By displaying his power over death, that is what causes the Pharisees to begin plotting to kill him. We see at the end of chapter 11. And so through this sickness, Jesus is saying not just in this specific moment, but ultimately the Son of God will be glorified because ultimately I'm going to the cross. And it's because of this (laughs) that starts that process. It says in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And I, again, this, this, this close relationship, this friendship that he has with them. And he mentions each one of them individually, not just he loved them generally. And it's a different word for love this time. It's not the phileo love, it's the agape love. It's that selfless, sacrificial love that he has for them, for Martha, for her sister, for Lazarus. He sees them each individually. <laughs> In a way, I wonder if this verse is kind of like a disclaimer as a reminder for what we see Jesus do next. <laughs> John, John's kind of like preparing us. Like, okay, knowing this is the kind of love that Jesus had for them makes the next verse seem really weird, right? John's like, I know this seems weird, but remember, just please remember, <laughs> Jesus loves Martha, <laughs> Jesus loves Lazarus, Jesus loves Mary, because I know this is going to get really weird. In verse 6, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And if you can picture this scene, if I can paint it as well as I can. This messenger has just traveled all this way, right? Essentially with nothing but a statement of fact, right? He doesn't even have a question, doesn't have a request. He's just coming to the Lord saying, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus doesn't respond. I'm, I'm sure the messenger was expecting something else <laughs> out of, out of Jesus' response, but he doesn't respond by getting up immediately and rushing off to help. Rather, I, he kind of I would imagine just kind of very calmly says, you know, this sickness is not so Lazarus will die. It's for the glory of God. It's so that the Son of God can be glorified through it. And then goes back to sipping his coffee or whatever. And the messenger is just standing there like, what? <laughs> like, that, that's it? I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? I guess that's the answer he returns with. And so he goes back to Mary and Martha with the message of the words that Jesus said. And they think, oh, good, good. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He knows. He loves Lazarus. And what they don't know is that Jesus stays right where he's at for two more days. Now, as if this wouldn't be, <clears throat> excuse me, confusing enough for Mary and Martha, it's got to be pretty puzzling to the disciples as well because Right In our understanding of love, if you love someone, how could you act in a way that seems so selfish? Right? The opposite of love is selflessness, right? because um, is selfishness, because love in itself is selfless. And so if you love someone, how could you act so selfishly? And it, we read in the cases of like uh, Jairus' daughter and the son of the widow from Nain in Luke 7 and 8, like he acts very promptly to raise them from the dead. Why not this time? 
Well, our, I think our finite point of view of love says love runs, right? Love acts, love responds. That's what we should do to show we love someone. And sometimes God's love operates like that as well, absolutely. But sometimes, sometimes divine love delays. And when it does, it's not without purpose. There's always a purpose for a divine delay in how the Lord acts. And here we see that God's divine delay results in bringing the greatest glory to his name. By not running off right away, he will receive the greater glory through the action that is going to follow. And if our hearts are truly surrendered and trusting in him, then that is what we will want as well, right? And is that your heart this morning? Are you in a situation where you're, where you're frustrated with God or he's not working or he's not moving the way that you want him to? You'd expect him to where you think that he should be or you need something from him and he's not giving it to you. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Jesus knew what Mary and Martha wanted from him, but what he had in store for them was something even greater. They just had to trust him. And so do we have the heart that can say, I trust your delay, God, if it means you will receive greater glory because of it? Is that our hearts this morning? Moving on. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, so here's the second interaction, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to him, our friend Lazarus sleeps, that I go, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So verse 7, they say, let us go to when Jesus says, let us go to Judea again, and the disciples respond with, with this way by saying, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? The translation there is, are you crazy? <laughs> like, why would you want to go back to the place where they're trying to kill you? Like, you are a wanted man, they're, they're trying to murder you, and this just doesn't seem like a great idea. And the and at the end of verse 8 there, in there, say when it says, are you going there? There's an emphatic on the word there again, right? Like, what? <laughs> of all places, that's where you want to go? And he responds to their questioning with kind of a critique of their perspective. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. This idea, when he's asking this question, are there not 12 hours in the day? It's a figuratively asking the disciples with a practical illustration saying, I've only got a certain amount of time left and there's still work to do. Jesus says the same thing, similar, very similar kind of illustration in John chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, when he heals the blind man and he's asked who sinned, the blind man or his parents, he responds, Jesus responds by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is telling them, I've only got a certain amount of time left. 
there's still work that I have to do. And he was willing to put himself in danger to continue fulfilling the work that God had sent him to do. Willing to put himself in danger, knowing that there was still work to do. Because he could have, I fully believe, by the power (laughs) that Jesus had, he could have healed Lazarus from a distance. We've seen him do it before, right? With Centurion and the Centurion servant. He could have healed him from a distance, no problem. But nothing could intervene or harm him until his work was finished. He had a mission, and he wasn't afraid to go back into the region where he was a wanted man to fulfill this specific mission. And if I can encourage you guys this morning, we have a mission too. And we've only got a certain amount of time left. Okay? The Lord will be returning. We will, either we're going there first or he's coming here. One way or another, on this earth, we only have a certain amount of time. There's still work to do. And are we going to spend our lives just complaining and questioning God's reasoning for why he's working the way he's working? Or are we going to selfishly put our needs before the needs of others who need to hear these things, who need to hear the gospel? Or are we going to get to work? So Jesus is telling them, like, we've got stuff to do. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. And this is like, <laughs> this, is, this is how I imagine Jesus doing this. Like, oh, okay, big face palm moment. Like, what, what is going on? Because if, if you think about it, the logic behind it doesn't even make sense from the disciples' perspective. Like, why would you want to travel all that way to the place where you could die just to wake up somebody from a nap? Like, right? Like that, that's essentially what they're saying, right? Is if he sleeps, he will get well. Like, our bodies need rest to recover. And if that's what's going to heal him, eventually he, he will get better. We don't have to go there, put our lives in danger. He's going to get better. And uh, <laughs> in, in our household, rest is kind of like the cure for everything, at least from my perspective. Not Leah's perspective. She's like, do this, do this. I'm like, they just, just need sleep. <laughs> I got a headache, Dad. I just rest. Oh, you know, stomach ache. They come out walking out of the hallway. Oh, my tummy hurts. Ah, oh, you probably just need more sleep. <laughs> like, Dad, my arm's broken. Ah, sleep it off, kid. No. Just get some rest, the disciples are saying. He'll get better. Clearly, Jesus isn't talking about actual sleep. <laughs> John includes verse 13. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but, that, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. It's kind of like he includes this just in case we're as clueless as the disciples. <laughs> it's like, this is actually what Jesus was saying, in case you didn't know. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus, okay, let me expel out for you guys. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. See, Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead before even arriving at Mary and Martha's. He knew that he was dead. He knew what he was doing. And he said, I am glad, which is a very odd reaction to the death of a dear friend. But he says he has every reason to be glad. Why? Because he sees the end from the beginning and he knew this wasn't the end. Why? He was certain of the outcome and how it would impact the lives of the disciples and the sisters. And so he said, I am glad. Why? For your sakes. Right, if, I, if I was there, I could have healed him. But you, you've seen me do that before. No, for your sakes, I'm glad that I wasn't there, that you may believe, that you may believe in me, but that you may believe that I am who I say I am, that you may believe that I have power over death. And so I believe that there's an, another purpose of God's divine delay is to strengthen our belief in the one in whom we serve. 
right, to take our faith deeper. If Jesus had been there with Lazarus, the disciples would not have seen or understood the power that Jesus had and the promise of resurrection that he was trying to teach them. It's for our sakes, because he loves us. Again, it's for our sakes that Jesus works the way that he does. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Uh, tradition says that uh, Thomas is called the twin because he looked like Jesus, therefore putting him at a special risk, kind of, for being mistaken as Jesus, especially as they're going back into a city where Jesus' life was kind of being threatened. And uh, Jews also had two names kind of back then. They had a Hebrew name, one by which a man would be known by his inner circle, his closest friends. And then they were also given a Greek name uh, by which he was kind of known more generally. Um, Thomas's Greek name was Didymus, uh, which also means twin. Um, so there's a couple reasons maybe why that's included in here. But he, he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Like, this isn't exactly a rally the troops battle cry from, from Thomas. This is kind of more of like an Eeyore kind of mentality of like, well, okay, let us go. We can die with him. He's loyal. <laughs> and I respect that, his boldness and his dedication and his commitment to the Lord. But not exactly hopeful. He's not exactly grasping this concept of resurrection <laughs> and power over death. If we're going to die, you might as well be with him. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. In verse 17, again, we see that this meant by saying that the, the body had already been in the tomb for four days. He didn't even be, Jesus didn't even begin to leave to, on his journey back to Judea until after Lazarus had died. Um, and he waits his four days. Again, the tradition of the time would say that the spirit hovered over the body for three days before going to Abraham's bosom, right? Just to see, hey, maybe I want to come back in. After four days, the, at four days, the body was so unrecognizable, the spirit's like, time to go. Not biblical <laughs> by any means. Very, it was all tradition. And the Bible is very clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen. But Jesus is just making a point by delaying his visitation this amount of time. Like Lazarus is dead, dead. <laughs> he's, he's dead. And so they go the, to Bethany. Many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them, right? They're all still mourning four days later. Relatives, friends, sometimes hired mourners would be coming. It was a very big spectacle in that culture to, to mourn for several days. But they gather around to comfort them. And boy, did they need it. I mean, imagine the agony of their prolonged suffering. All they knew was that the message had gotten to Jesus. The message returned with what Jesus said, and then they're just waiting, and then Lazarus dies, and Jesus is still not there. Jesus hadn't returned to heal their brother. The amount of confusion and the pain they felt for someone that they thought loved their brother so much 
Four days after, Jesus still isn't there. They're mourning. He's been in the tomb. Jesus still isn't there to mourn with them even. Verse 20, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. She hears that Jesus is finally coming. She goes out to meet him. I don't know, someone told them, saw him approaching, told them that, she was on, that he was on their way. I, you know, I don't know where or how far off he was. But Mary stays sitting in the house. And I don't, I don't know if this means that, like, <laughs> Martha just didn't tell Mary <laughs> before she ran out, or Mary just decides not to go. But Martha runs out to meet him. And what is the first thing that Martha says? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Really unfortunate thing about reading the text is you don't hear the tone. I think you can read it either way. I think you could read this. This could be reproof, right? With like a a finger in the face, kind of like accusing Jesus for not being there. Or it could also be remorse and like a heartbroken voice shaking, crying out, saying, Lord, if you, had, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In my head, from Martha, I hear the reproof. I'm just, just knowing what we know about Martha from, her scripture, from Scripture and how she's, always, she's a busybody, she's always acting, right? Personally, I also feel like that's how I would respond. I can imagine the, the frustration and the anger and the confusion she felt by what Jesus had done or by his inaction for someone he supposedly loved. But whether you read it in a reproof or a remorseful way, the underlying question is the same. Where were you? Where were you? Have you ever asked the Lord that before? Maybe you've asked it a lot over the past like three or four years. Where were you, God? Jesus, what are you doing? Where were you when I needed you. And then the follow-up to that question is inevitably all the if-thens, right? If, if you had been here, then my brother wouldn't have died. Or if, if you had brought people into someone's life, if you had just brought people into their life, then, then their marriage would have been saved. If you had intervened sooner, then maybe more babies would have been saved. If, if, if. And we just keep going and going and going, accusing the Lord. Because it's easier for us to rationalize in our finite mind that there's a reason than it is for us to just throw ourselves at the sovereignty of God. Because we don't understand and we don't get it all the time. And we ask, where were you? She also says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And I I confess that I really don't know what Martha means by this. I'll give my reasons as to kind of why. It would be easy to think that she's implying that she has faith that Jesus has the power to bring Lazarus back from the dead. It very well might be. There's some other verses that kind of tell me or lend me to think differently. If you have insight into this verse, let me know afterwards so I can teach the second service the right thing. <laughs> but regardless, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what she meant. And he says to her, your brother will rise again. Literally, he will walk again. And as has been evident through all the previous interactions, Martha promptly misunderstands him and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I don't have a lot of time to dig into this verse specifically about what she's saying here, but suffice it to say that Martha understands that the concept of a general resurrection at the last day, like I know he's going to walk at the last day, Jesus, like that's really comforting. Thanks. Thanks. 
Like, but what about here and now? (laughs) That's not helping me here and now. And Jesus corrects her way of thinking. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This promise of eternal life through belief in him. Jesus takes Martha's belief in dogma and turns it into faith in who he is as a person. He takes her from religion to relationship right here in this statement. I am the embodiment of the resurrected life that can conquer death. It's not about necessarily about what's to come. Jesus is telling her belief in him means eternal life starts right now in this moment. You believe in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Don't worry about what I can do right now or don't be caught up in like, well, that doesn't help me right now, Lord, right here in this earthly plane. That doesn't help me. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the third thing I think the vine delays teach us is to keep an eternal perspective. Because, yeah, things are bad here. <laughs> I will level with you 100%. When you see the world, things can be bad, are bad. There's a lot of evil out there. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He writes again in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's not about now. Eternal life starts now. But it's not about what's going on right in front of us. Have you lost the eternal perspective? And are you too focused on the temporal, on what you want God to do right now, what you expect him to do right now in this moment, instead of keeping your focus on eternity? I'm not saying the things that we struggle with, the trials, the sufferings that we experience on this earth are unimportant by any means. But all those things that happen here only have value and purpose in light of eternity. Because if this is it, they have no value and purpose. If the grave is the end, they have no value and purpose. But all those things we go through, in light of eternity, the Lord uses all those things to press us more into the one who is our resurrection and life. 1 John chapter 5, I don't have to turn there. Verse 10, John writes, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Amen? That's why we can trust him. These things have value and purpose. When we're struggling with them here to keep our focus on the eternal, we have life if we have him. And he ends what he says here in verse 26. He asks Martha a question that I believe is directed to us as well. Do you believe this? And if you do, as you sit in that chair this morning, then you have overcome death through the belief in Jesus Christ. You have his power living in you that has been imputed to you 
you sit there this morning, eternity starting right now. Do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Martha responds, verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. The phrase, I believe, the first person pronoun coupled with the perfect tense of the verb implies not only a past decision, but also a present state of mind. There could not have been a stronger expression of conviction and faith than what Martha is saying right here. I believe who you are. Verse 28, when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. So Mary now runs out to meet him, finally, after being told by Martha that he's coming and asking for her. The Jews following her or thinking that she's going to the tomb. I mean, they were with her mourning in the house. And they're, well, okay, we're, we're, it seems fitting that we're going to follow her to where she's mourning if she's going to go down to the tomb. I mean, if any of them are hired mourners, I'm sure they want her to get her money's worth anyways. So they're going to follow her down to the tomb to mourn with her there. And when she sees Jesus, verse 32, then Mary, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Falling at his feet, this grief and brokenheartedness. And she says the same thing, Lord, if you had been here. I think this is more the remorse than it is the reproof. And Jesus reacts so differently to her. This word for weeping is this loud wailing, crying profusely at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus reacts so differently. He doesn't give her a theology lesson. He doesn't question her belief or challenge her faith. He responds in kind, emotion. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Literally, the phrase they're groaning in the spirit is to snort like a horse, to bellow with anger, The implication here not being so much that Jesus was sad at the scene before him. He was sad. It was his friend. But even more than that, he was angry. He was angry at the fact that this was not part of the original plan. He had never intended for anyone to have to suffer due to the loss of a loved one or to endure death or eternal separation from him. That was not his plan. And death had victory here in this world. And it made him angry. How beautiful it is. In Revelation 21, it tells us the first thing that Jesus removes in the new heaven and new earth is death. No more pain, no more suffering. Everything will be as he intended. This wasn't the plan. He's, he's angry. And it says he was troubled. That the word means agitated. His feelings being stirred up. Again, not immune to the human emotions, but resulted from sharing the grief of his friend's death. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. This phrase, this word wept for here is not the loud wailing, but a quiet weeping. Grieving, but under control. Just tears start flowing down. If you look through the Gospels, grief and compassion, the most common emotions that we see Christ exhibit on his earthly ministry. Not stoicism, not this a man. <laughs> I don't show emotion. I am God. <laughs> if we want to be like Jesus, 
then we will grieve and we will have compassion and empathy for those that are around us that are lost. Question is, do you? When Jesus sees Mary, he responds differently again. He weeps when he sees Mary weeping. And I believe that teaches, the way he responds to Mary and to Martha, I think teaches us something. Is that regardless of how we respond to the Lord's delay, whether it be anger or weeping, it is good to know that Jesus can meet us right where we're at and minister to us. Because they both had different reactions, but they both had one thing in common, and then they both came to Jesus. They both came to Jesus. They didn't wait for him to show up at their doorstep. They ran out to him. And that's all he wants from us. He knows you're angry. He knows you're upset. He knows you're sad. He knows all the emotions that you could possibly feel. He wants to teach you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to weep with you. And that is a unique characteristic of the God that we serve, that we serve a God who weeps, who weeps with us. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. They got that right. He loved Lazarus. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It seems to be a logical question from the Jews. If he was able to do those things, could he not have also saved Lazarus? Could he have also not healed him and kept him from dying? Even recognizing those things that Jesus did, though, they still thought there was nothing that he could do at this point. They still thought this was it. This is the end. There's nothing else he could do. Fifthly, I think it's five. I didn't number these. Number five. Divine delays, I think, show us that we have no right, really, to question the why and the how behind the way God works. We don't have any right to question how he works. Are we God? <laughs> like, ultimately, do we have omnipotence? Are we all-powerful? Are we all-knowing? Are we omnipresent? Are we everywhere at once? Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 5, 2, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In short, know your place. <laughs> know where you are and know the location of the one you serve. And realize we have no right to question. Job questioned God and what did God say? Where were you? <laughs> right? Jesus, er, Martha and Mary asked, asked Jesus, where were you? And God asks, where were you? <laughs> Where were you when I formed the world to set the foundations of the earth? Verse 38, Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. I think it's cool that he tells them to do that, that he allows them to partake and be a part of the miracle. Right? He could have blown the stone to smithereens if he wanted to, but instead he invites them to come alongside them to be his hands and feet to partake in the ministry, to use them. They said, but Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead for days. This is why I don't personally believe that verse 22 is necessarily a statement of belief that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. It makes sense that she wouldn't want to expose the corpse, that, you know, that wouldn't be very dignified. It could risk becoming unclean. But she had to put faith in Jesus. And by saying, like, eh, maybe we'll just keep it closed. <laughs> kind of smells. To me, shows I don't, she didn't have that faith yet that he was actually going to be able to do what he said he was going to do. And so sixthly, I think God's divine delays are to see if our actions will prove what we believe or not. 
It's a test for us to see if we're actually going to live a life that proves what we believe. Because the body had been dead for four days. Don't look up images of this. But, I mean, unless you want to. It's a little weird. But do you know what happens to a body four days after death? Physically? In a hot Palestinian climate? It's not, it's not nice. <laughs> Rigor mortis is in. Eternal organs are decomposed. Eye sockets begin to sink. The body is bloated. Liquids begin pouring out of orifices. Bacteria is beginning to grow. She had a right to say, yeah, let's keep this closed. <laughs> but she didn't have faith that Jesus could actually do what he said he was going to do. And Jesus said to her, verse 40, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? The, the hardest part of this whole scenario for Jesus was not raising Lazarus from the dead. It was simply removing the uncertainty and hesitancy from Martha and all those present that the glory of God would actually be revealed in this situation. <laughs> that was the hardest part. The raising Lazarus from the dead is the easy thing. Getting us to come to that place of faith to reveal the glory of God is the hard thing. Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. He's again, Jesus is doing this for their benefit, to strengthen their faith, to strengthen their belief in who he is. Right? And he doesn't ask God to raise Lazarus. You notice that? <laughs> he doesn't ask God to raise him. He simply thanks him for a having already heard and answered. The transaction was complete. It was done. And in, in the Lord's mind, Lazarus was already back from the dead. Verse 43, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This is not a gentle whisper. This is a shout with authority. Lazarus, come forth. I've heard it said that Jesus had to call Lazarus by name because if he didn't specify who he was talking to, all the dead everywhere would just rise up <laughs> and come out. <laughs> and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, again, participate in what I'm doing. You go, loose him and let him go. For him to have come out, knowing what had physically happened to the body in regards to, to the decomposition process, and not only has power over death, but he's the author of life. Like every cell that forms a human body is at his command. He reverses the process of corruption and brings a corpse back to life. That is power. As we begin to close, I see the time. Kind of have to address real quickly that what a bum deal this must have been for Lazarus. <laughs> right? Like... He's worshiping before the Lord. <laughs> he's not sick anymore. He's not in pain. He's enjoying the most like, majestic and beautiful thing he's ever seen. He's enjoying the fullness of what he was created for. His eyes are finally seeing the glory of God. His ears are hearing the voices of angels and saints praising the Lord. In the name of the Lord, his feet are walking on the streets of gold. And as, as he's enjoying all this, someone taps him on the shoulder and he turns around like Gabriel's there or something. He's like, hey... <laughs> Laz, this is awkward. <laughs> but we're going to have to send you back down there. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a reason Jesus rarely brought people back from the dead. It's because he knew what he was bringing them from and where he was bringing them back to. He's bound hand and foot with grave claws. 
His face was wrapped with a cloth. This is not like an Egyptian mummification kind of wrapping. It's a very different way that the Jews would wrap a, a body. But if his hands and his feet are still bound, then he's either floating out or he's hopping out. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's the only way he's getting out. But imagine the emotions as they walk up to him and they, Jesus tells them to loose him and let him go. They stare into his eyes again. Scripture doesn't tell us because I don't know how you would be able to like describe that adequately enough, what's going on here. As they see their brother, as they see the Lord finally come through, they see it's all coming together. This is why he delayed. And so we see the glory and he receives the most glory due to his name in this moment. It's all coming together now. And I had this thought as I read this. Is there anything that could scare Lazarus from this point forward? Like, he has to die again, but he's seen what awaits. He's been there. He knows. And as he's, he's eating dinner with Jesus, sitting next to him and talking to him, can you imagine the thoughts going through his head as he looks at his Savior? He says, I've I know what you gave up for me. I know what you've done. I know how you intended things to be. I'm still kind of bitter that I'm here, (laughs) but I know what you were doing ultimately. It was great. Let me end here in verse 45 and 46. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. How could some of them not believe they watched this man float or hop out of a grave. In Luke chapter 16, oddly enough, this is Jesus talking about the Lazarus and the rich man. I won't go through the whole story. But at the end of it, verse 27, it says, He said, this would be the rich man, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my brother's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he, this is Abraham, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The hardness of man's heart. You're not who you say you are, Jesus. You're not the resurrection and the life. We plot to kill you. And so as the worship team comes up to close us out, I think the ultimate, the seventh, again, not understanding what that number is throughout Scripture, the ultimate reason for divine delays is so people can come to a saving faith in Christ, that they would believe in Him. Because regardless of whether or not there's a specific maybe divine delay that is going on in your life right now and you're wondering what the purpose is, You're waiting for the Lord to give you an answer or to move and to intervene in a certain way. Maybe he's working in a way that he will receive the most glory and that's why he's delaying. Maybe he wants to strengthen your belief and faith in the one who you serve. Maybe he's teaching you to keep an eternal perspective. Maybe he's just wanting to minister to you where you're at. You just have to come to him. Maybe he wants you to trust him because you have no right to question the way that he is working. Maybe he wants to see if your actions will be evidence of everything that you believe, that you say you believe. Whatever the reason is, again, I tell you what it's not. It's not because he doesn't love you. And if it's not a specific divine delay maybe that you're going through right now, we're all living in the middle of one because we're all still here. 
The Lord has delayed his coming. We're in the middle of a divine delay so that more people may be saved. And he has invited you and me to partner with him in that work. Are there not 12 hours in the day? There's still work to do. If Jesus had been there to heal Lazarus before he died, these Jews probably would not have put their faith in Jesus as the Son of God because they were just mourning. It hadn't been enough yet. They saw this and they came to faith and then believed who he said he was. And therefore, he was worthy of their devotion and he's worthy of ours. Again, verse 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And can we say with conviction, yes, Lord, I believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have gone before us and paid the price to overcome death. Lord, that we are, as we sit here this morning, that we are living in eternity right now. And we long for the day where, like Lazarus, we will see you face to face. We will see exactly the purpose we were created for. Glorify, Lord, as we worship before you. But we are here. We are living in a a delay, a divine delay, and there is work to do. And so I pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the power to go out and to minister in your love to the world around us. Father, it's your love. It's your love that you haven't returned yet. And now, even though we don't understand many things that are going on in this world, the reasons behind it, I pray that we can say with conviction, Lord, I believe this morning. I believe and I trust in you and I believe that there is a purpose for this. Lord, to know that we are here on earth and you are in heaven and you are sovereign. We throw ourselves at the sovereignty of who you are. Father, if there's anyone this morning who is doubting the way you're working in their life, whether it be because they're wondering if you actually do love them, Lord, or they're just waiting for an answer, I pray that you would minister to them right now. That they would know of your love for them. And that your yes, your no, your delay, whatever it may be, is for their good. It's for their benefit, Lord. You have what's best in mind for them. I pray we would be faithful with the work that you have given us. As we give our life to you, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.